Hi, my name is Jeremy Haig, psychic medium, tarot reader, and proud nerd of the occult and the spiritual. I've been talking to the dead since before I can remember. Hearing their stories and listening to their lessons radically changed my life and taught me to become more curious and peel back the layers of the world around me. On this podcast, I invite you on a journey as we discuss spirituality hot topics with specialists and practitioners from across the witchcraft community, pull and explore monthly collective tarot readings, and recount lost or forgotten paranormal stories from around the world. This is When Walls Can Talk, the podcast. These first six episodes are the Colorado Tales, shocking true stories of heartbreak, death, and the unexplained events that followed. This week, my special guests are also some of my new best friends, Shale and Cheyenne from the incredible podcast Ouija Boards and Midnight Marks. I'm so excited. So this excited. This is officially When Walls Can Talk, the podcast's very first premiere Woo-hoo! episode. Yes! And I have the best the Aww. absolute best extra special guests here today. I have Cheyenne and Shale from Ouija Boards and Midnight Marks. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi. Cheers, oh. witches. Cheers. <laughs> We're freaking stoked to be here. I am so excited to have you. I don't think you know very much about our topic today, which is like the best part. I have so much up my sleeve. I'm so excited. Ooh. Yes, we love a surprise. Right? I told them, I was like, here's the concept, which if you're listening to this podcast, you can see the title, you know what we're going to talk about, but I told them not to do any extra research because I kind of want to surprise them. You know what's so funny is I always forget about that. Like when we record, I'm always like, this is going to be such a surprise. And right. then we remember that they'll know by the title. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And here I am like, I don't even really know exactly what the wording of the title is going to be. I have some ideas, so I'm not going to say. So surprise. Right, exactly. It's going to be a surprise for me too. <laughs> So here's what we're talking about today. Are you all ready? Yes. Are we diving right into this? Let's do it. Okay, let's do it. Before we even begin, what do you know about Cheeseman Park right here in Denver, Colorado? Do you know anything? I know that it's close to the Botanical Gardens. That's correct. (laughs) It borders the Botanical Gardens. That's absolutely correct. Yes. So literally the only thing I know about Cheeseman is that there are bodies there. There were bodies there. (laughs) Quote, unquote, at some point. Yes. So wait, are there no longer bodies there? Isn't that the question? (laughs) So yeah, we are actually, ironically, we are recording this podcast at my apartment. Um, It's probably one of the only episodes we're actually going to record at this apartment because I'm about to move. So Mm. fun little caveat, if you hear some church bells in the background... That's just the church that I live right next to. We think it adds to the vibe. I do too. I think it's kind of a whole vibe, so I'm excited. Yes, so we are recording this podcast right here from Denver, Colorado, and Cheeseman Park is located here in Capitol Hill, which is the neighborhood that we are in right now. The park is 80 acres and is estimated to contain almost 2,000 different trees. I thought you were going to say bodies. (laughs) I was prepared for it to be morbid really quickly, and then you're like, but trees. We're going to get there. We're like stuck on the bodies. Right? So arguably, very arguably, I think this is one of the most loved and probably most visited parks in Denver. I feel like that's fair, especially on the weekends. It's always packed with people playing volleyball and just kind of relaxing and just kind of hanging out. It's such a beautiful, big space. And you'll hear a little bit more about why it got picked. Unfortunately, most people who are just chilling and hanging out on the weekend have no idea that they are laying and playing games and relaxing on top of the remains of hundreds of so bodies. So there are still bodies there. There are a lot of bodies still in Jesus Park. Um, Not just bodies, but a lot of yeah. bodies. <laughs> and a lot of people say that like when the sun sets um, in Cheeseman, it becomes something completely different. The energy Ooh. in Cheeseman is completely different from during the day. How close did you say we were? We're like less than 50 minutes away. We, we, could, we could absolutely walk over there after this. <laughs> we totally We might need to do we that. We could go field trip. Um, but yeah, no, described by those living around the edges of Cheeseman, it is dark and mysterious at night. It's very eerie. There's a lot of unexplained occurrences that happen there that we're going to talk about in just a few minutes. We will get there. But a lot of people just have this sense of being uneasy and uncomfortable, very eerie. Personally, I will throw in a little thing here that I actually feel that way sometimes walking through the park in broad daylight. 
mm. where I just have this sense. I often like to walk through Cheeseman when I'm walking to my, my non-9 to 5, my little retail thing. <laughs> my Sunday retail stint. I like to take a little field trip and go through Cheeseman. And I have to say, even during the day, I have these moments where it's like, I don't know about this. <laughs> I just don't, I don't know. It's just, just something's going on. And granted, I am a little bit sensitive. I'm a lot of bit sensitive to that kind of thing. So I'll chalk it up to that as well. But one of the main experiences that a lot of people have is on moonlit nights when you stand on the pavilion. I don't know if you are familiar with the, the there's a very large marble structure yes. with columns. It's very Romanesque. And we'll talk about its history as we go through the story. But a lot of people will stand on the stairs of the pavilion and look out over the park. And a lot of people will see the silhouettes of the tombstones that have been removed a very long time ago. Ooh. But it's, it's yeah, isn't it kind of like, whoa. Yeah, that gives me chills. Yeah, it's, a, it's one of the most uh, experienced occurrences where people will turn around and they'll just see the silhouette of the tombstones that used to be in Cheeseman. We need to set the scene here. Mm. We need to we need to set the tell this story right. I need to take you back in time. I'm going to take you back in time with me to 1851. We're going back 10 years before the outbreak of the Civil War and 1 year before Uncle Tom's Cabin was published. that are crossing the country on the Oregon and the Santa Fe Trail and crossing through the Great Plains has increased. It's absolutely exploded. Yeah. The amount of people crossing the country right now is insane. I think you know where I'm going with this. The United States government undertook negotiations with the Native American Plains tribes living between the Arkansas and Missouri River. Their goal here was simply to ensure that there was a protected right of way for the American migrants that were finding their way across the country. As you can imagine, and to our great disappointment, the native tribes, unfortunately, were not the ones winning in this particular situation. Right, I feel like we should say negotiations with, like, big time Absolutely. Yeah. No, absolutely. And we're going to talk a little bit about it, um, just because I think it's important. I think it's important to remember... The history that we live upon, the ground that we live upon, mm -hmm. we've talked about this together a little bit, how, how important it is to always pay homage to the people who were here before us and the religious beliefs that existed here before us. I just want to, I want to put that out there as a really important, a really important caveat here to remember that we, we tell the story, um, with love and with a little bit of laughter and a little bit of, um, What's the word? A little uh, sarcasm. Almost a little tongue-in-cheek. Of course, yeah. but it's important to remember that these were probably one of the most bloody mm -hmm. periods of history for the indigenous peoples of the Americas. And I yeah. think we... I just think it's important to remember that too, of course. Yeah, yeah. thank you for that. Oh, yeah. And I, I honor my privilege here as well. I haven't had to deal with what some of our mm -hmm. indigenous brothers and sisters deal with um, still today. So, in 1851, the Treaty of Fort Laramie was signed on September 17th, 1851, between the United States Treaty Commissioners and representatives of the Native Nations. Specifically, we are talking about the Cheyenne, the Sioux, the Arapaho, the Crow, and several others as well. I believe in total there were eight different tribes represented at this meeting. The main purpose, of course, as we talked about, was to protect these pioneers traveling west on the Oregon Trail. But unfortunately, the well-being of the Native peoples was not the priority mm -hmm. in this negotiation. The United States acknowledged that all of the land that they agreed were covered in this treaty was Indian territory, and they did not claim any part of it. That doesn't last very long. <laughs> The Native Americans guaranteed safe passage for settlers on the Oregon Trail and allowed for roads and forts to be built in their territories along these roads, along these trails, to help develop an infrastructure for the American travelers, the American pioneers, the frontiersmen. The treaty also made a quote 
effective and lasting peace among the eight tribes represented, each of which were often at odds with the other. So they spoke on like behalf of exactly the indigenous exactly. tribes. Not surprisingly, this treaty was broken almost immediately after its inception, <laughs> primarily by the United States government, which proceeded to begin to remove these indigenous peoples from their agreed-upon territories less than a year later. Here we are, back to Cheeseman. I'm sure you can see what I'm about to say. Mm-hmm. The land that Cheeseman sits upon, unfortunately, was part of the land that was, quote, acquired from the native peoples mm-hmm. that lived here before us. On November 22nd, 1858... General William Larimer, who was a land speculator around this area, um, especially during the Pikes Peak Gold Rush, Mm -hmm. which came right after the California one, he found a hill overlooking the confluence of the Cherry Creek and the South Platte Rivers, which is not far from here, and he staked his claim to this land and named it Denver City to honor the governor of the Kansas Territory, James W. Denver. Side note, can we talk about somebody naming a city after something that's not themselves? Like, <laughs> I, th- I just think it was really cool. Like, yeah. he didn't show up and name this city. Like, we would be called Larimer now yeah. if that was the case. But he did name it Denver after after someone else. So, fun That is really funny. Is that kind of funny? Yeah. I read that. I was like, huh, interesting. That's well, I different. I mean, we have a county named after him. True. No, that is but true. But it doesn't sound like he named it himself. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, technically, this land still belonged to the Native Americans, even at this point. So, we've got a problem. We, right. are, we are off to a bad start from the get-go. <laughs> yeah. And this is where Cheeseman becomes what it is now. So he set aside 320 acres of land that were set to serve as a cemetery for this newly formed city. And this is on the spot that is the current Cheeseman and Congress Parks was included in this original land. In 1859, the land was officially given, quote unquote, Hmm. we're really into giving land to people who doesn't belong to. Yeah. The land was given to the city of Denver to be a cemetery and it was named Mount Prospect Cemetery. At the time, cemeteries were similar to today's parks. They were considered where people would go for walks, for weekend picnics. So it was always meant to be a beautiful, lush, well-cared-for meeting spot for especially the well-to-do. Spending an afternoon in a cemetery was considered like going to a park today. It was that's, it was like a very normal tradition at the time. That's actually so interesting because we talk a lot about like how our culture views death now. Yeah. And it's super interesting to try to think about where was that point where death and being around it became so taboo. Right. Because yeah, it used to be something that was revered or like we had wakes where we literally like spend time with the body. Yeah. When did that ever end? And why did it become such a weird, scary thing to people? It was just, it was the thing that you did as a family. It was, yeah, you get together and you go make a picnic in the grass that is so funny because now that's like, that's what we do, right? right? That's what all your weird witchy friends are doing. Right? We're all going on goth picnics in the park and it's... But they're goth now. But yeah. it's like, it's like it's, weird and yeah. dark and edgy and we're like, no, we love to hang out here. Um, yeah, it's just an interesting juxtaposition. It is. And it was common for some of the most beautiful open spaces to be assigned a cemetery. So... At the time, Cheeseman and Congress Parks were, it was the highest point in the vicinity and had sweeping views of the mountains. It was, it was a beautiful spot in what would very quickly become the city of Denver. So we're doing okay so far. I feel like we're, we're doing okay. Um, no, we're not. <laughs> there's, there's a major twist to this story that I have not yet told you. You ready for it? Yes. I'm ready. Yeah. I mean, maybe. Yeah. You may have a guess where we're going here. This acquired land, specifically... Cheeseman and Congress Parks were already a sacred burial ground yep. for the native oh. peoples of the Arapaho Nation. It was this revered sacred ground for a very long time. Yeah, already um, a resting place. Yes, and it was handed very casually to the city of Denver. <laughs> One of the stipulations of the land grant that I was talking about earlier, this 1851 treaty, was that no bodies in this area were allowed to be buried deeper than three feet deep. Because what that feels low, yeah, they were not to disturb the Native Americans that were already buried here. Okay, so, so we're was stacking that, was that bodies. A, we're stacking bodies. So was that out of convenience or was that actually out of respect? Ain't that the question? Okay, a question. ain't that the question? I don't know. That's I don't really know why they came or who brought this stipulation into being. But yeah, no, they were not allowed to bury any bodies deeper than three feet in the ground. 
which is not very deep. Not at all. Yeah. That's not very deep. Yeah. And that becomes a problem. I'm sure it as does. You will find right, out. I was gonna say there's very... like a legitimate like scientific reason yeah. we go at least six, yes. right? I'm yes. picturing like dogs digging. Right? Dogs. Oh same. I'm like coyotes. <laughs> yeah. Animals. Animals. <laughs> <laughs> You are already here with me. You are already ahead of me. So we're off to a really, really, really great start here yes. with this new park, aren't we? Okay. So at this point, we are a cemetery. Cheeseman Park is a cemetery. The top of the hill was reserved for the most wealthy and well-to-do. Naturally. Of course. And the outer edges of the cemetery were for the poor and the diseased criminals, etc. Mm-hmm. Middle class were, you guessed it, in the middle. Huh. So this is our setup. Poetic. Right? <laughs> the story goes, and I love this story. This is a good story. Depending on who you ask, the first person to be buried here was Mr. John Stoffel, a gold prospector who was hanged on a cottonwood tree at the intersection of 10th and Cherry Creek for murdering his brother-in-law, who was also a prospector. And the generally accepted story was that he wanted his brother-in-law's gold leaf that he was uh, panning for at the time. Mm. At the time, Denver was only about 100 to 150 buildings, so very new, very small, that's, um, like, hard to fathom. <laughs> right? There was literally only 100 buildings here at the time, and the nearest court system was in Kansas. There was no established court system here in Denver. So if you had to go to trial, you had to literally travel, like, days. Or you do what we did. <laughs> they made a people's court. Oh. So they got a bunch of people together, and they convicted him and hung him less than two days after the crime was committed. Yeah. So they weren't messing around here. They were, yeah. we were, we were quick in, quick out. <laughs> so the, the, the story here is that Mr. John Stoffel was the first documented execution and burial. Oh yeah, and there's another fun story about this that I forgot. We'll get there in just a second. And over a thousand spectators showed up to watch the execution. <laughs> Isn't that weird to think about, like, for how many centuries that people actually, like, watched execution executions almost as, like, a form of... Oh, was entertainment. That's your drama. Yeah. Like, what else are you doing? Every day is basically the same. You're doing your chores. You're keeping your house or your animals or your business. Yeah. And attending a local execution. Hanging's pretty fucking exciting. Like, I know. It's just so weird to think about, like... It's so morbid. Yeah. The things that they were sensitive about back then, but, like, a hanging wasn't one of them. Right. Oh, because children were in the audience. Yeah. Your whole family was going to this. Well, speaking of which, another little fun fact not related to Cheeseman is that um, France had its last uh, execution by guillotine. Yes. I actually saw something about this the other day. 1970. Yeah. 1970. (laughs) That's absurd. Fun thing to throw in. We are so gross to each other. Yeah. We are. I mean, it's funny because... Nowadays, we listen to podcasts about all these stories. Then, this was their podcast. You go I know, I'm on, I'm on this really high high horse soapbox being like, what a bunch of gross people when we're absolutely devouring all of this right. information. <laughs> right. It's about to get worse. Are you ready? Yes. After the hanging, both John and his brother-in-law were tossed into the same grave. <sighs> so the man that you murdered, you are now stuck with for all eternity. Okay, in a way, I can kind of be on board with that for the murderer, because yeah. you're, no, I, I you're a jerk that. and you just have to live with that you're guilt, accountable. but for the person who was the murderee, <laughs> right. that seems a little shitty. It's exciting. So we, and this is just one. This is one. <laughs> like, like, barely scratched the surface. One messed up incident. So yeah, very quickly, the park was filling up with the lower classes on the outskirts Right, we of die faster. It's so true. Um, and unfortunately, it's just the net. We are in 18, what is this, 1860 at this point? Not a great time for the medical industry, I don't yeah. think. We'll get into that as well. But very quickly, the outskirts of the cemetery were filling up with the lower class, and it very quickly gained the nickname, the Old Boneyard. Ooh. Right? I read that, I was like, that's good. That's good. That's, that's good. good. <laughs> but it wasn't good, because at the same time, all of the upper classes no longer had any interest in being buried in a cemetery that had a nickname like the Old Boneyard. That was full of degenerates. Yep. So very quickly, Cheeseman Park, at that point a cemetery, became a cemetery for the poor, the criminals, and the diseased. Very quickly, mm-hmm. it developed a reputation, and those were the people who ended up buried there. Mm-hmm. After the f- it was already such a sacred right. site. Right. Mm-hmm. The first official undertaker... 
for this uh, of this city cemetery. His name was John J. Wally. He was ironically a cabinet maker by trade. Yeah, he was an aspiring undertaker. It's a transitional and, skill, right? <laughs> and I think I think the word aspiring is um, woefully underplaying his ineptitude, which we'll talk oh, about no. in just a second. His office was on fourteen uh, twelve Larimer Street, which is right on uh, Larimer Square. You can literally go visit a store. Um, I forget what store it is, but you can literally go visit where his old cabinetry office used to be. Interesting. And he was aspiring at best. In 1866, it was recorded that 626 people were buried in the cemetery. And Wally was doing a disgraceful job as the undertaker. Headstones were toppled. Graves were being vandalized right and left. Cows are being allowed to graze on the whole cemetery. And it very quickly, it turned into a giant eyesore for the city. They want, as we talked about, they wanted it to be this beautiful place right. for family to come and gather and spend time with their, their deceased, their loved ones. Um, and it just was not that. Also, how do you be a bad undertaker? Like, your job's not that hard, right? Oh, it's going to get, it just gets worse and worse. <laughs> oh, boy. It's going to oh, get Molly. worse and worse. Eventually, the U.S. government offered the land to the city of Denver, who purchased it for a whopping $200 and named it ever so creatively the Denver City Cemetery. So we finally changed hands. We finally have this cemetery in the hands of the city of Denver. And this is when the cemetery was then divided up by religions and ethnicities. So you had a Catholic section, you had a section for the Masons, you had a section for uh, the Jewish population, you had a section for the Grand Army of the Republic... Sorry, how do you do that with the bodies that are already there? I don't know. Do we dig people up? Do we move people? Not yet. Okay. We're getting to that, but not yet. They were just like, this is now. This is now. Whoever's here, you were probably a mason. (laughs) And we'll get to this in a second, but the Catholic section is actually where the Botanic Gardens are now. Oh, yeah. Okay. And they handled they handled their shit pretty well, comparatively speaking. <laughs> Compared, it's all comparative. <laughs> um, and there was also a really big section that was given to the Chinese population, because there was a, a large influx of Chinese immigrants coming to this area as following the gold rushes. Right. The Chinese population, when they were ordered to move their bodies, were actually one of the only ones that handled it with a lot of grace, mm. and they assigned specific ships to carry the bodies back to their homeland, uh-huh. which they were the only they were the only group, the only segregated area of the cemetery to take that kind of action. And I think it's just kind of special to mention because yeah, there absolutely. was a lot of reverence, or a lot of reverence in the way that they chose to handle transporting those bodies. But we'll come back to that in a second. A lot of, like, respect and honor. Exactly. So, on a corner of the cemetery in 1861, a hospital, and I use that word very great (laughs) we are being very generous with using the word hospital here cocaine about it yeah was created for those suffering with smallpox because we are now in the smallpox pandemic who triggered the the smallpox panini (laughs) we are in a panoramic (laughs) and this hospital was called oh we love the 19 what is this 1861. It was called the Pest House. Oh, God. Oh, my gosh. Are you for real? I am for real, for real. And it is being described as a glorified shed in which to quarantine those dying of smallpox and many others. Tuberculosis. The list goes on and on. Those poor people. I know. Smallpox victims were quarantined away from the general population and more often than not were dropped off and left to die. That was the expectation. (laughs) They would live out the rest of their days in this glorified shed. I'm sorry. This is my gallows humor coming out because I'm horrified by this. But all I can think is also, bring out your dead. <laughs> I'm not dead yet. <laughs> uh, I apologize. No, it's, it's, it's so real though. Uh, the ground behind the hospital was called Potter's Field and a section of the graveyard here was used as mass graves for these victims. Mm. By 1880, the cemetery was more or less never used, wildly unkempt, and ironically, it was located in the most prestigious area of town. So the city of Denver decided, we need to do something. It was no longer the garden slash park that they wanted, and very quickly, real estate developers started campaigning very hard to turn the area into a park. It it just makes you wonder, like, 
would anything have ever been done if it wasn't in the location that it was? If it wasn't in the middle of town? Isn't, yeah. Or in a prestigious part of town. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A Colorado senator convinced Congress to allow the transition to take place, and on January 25th, 1980, Congress announced the clearing of the cemetery, renaming it Congress Park. So the families of the individuals who were buried here were given 90 days, 90 days to come and collect their remains and transport them to a new resting place. I can't even imagine. Does collect your remains mean I'm literally coming and digging up a family member myself? Cool. They would come dig up their family members themselves. Like there was no support for that. No. Their goal was to turn this into a park as quickly as possible. Wow. One of the biggest issues here with this transportation order were that records more or less didn't exist. Right. Mm. Wally wasn't doing anything as far as records. There are Wally. (laughs) Virtually, right? This dude, my God. There were virtually no records of the burials that had taken place during his time as Undertaker. So wait. So how do you even know who you're digging up? I suppose if you're wealthy enough to have a tombstone, then maybe you'll know where they are. Wow. The families who could afford it began to transport their loved ones, but since the Catholic section was very, by far the most densely populated, right. and the Catholic Church tends to be on it when it comes to these kind of things, the mayor sold 40 acres to the archdiocese right away and named that designated section Mount Calvary Cemetery. They were on top of it. They didn't want to have to move the Catholic bodies. Okay, something that's, like, kind of popping in my mind is my grandmother always had this thing about <laughs> never changing a name. So, like, if you got a pet and you adopted it at the yeah. adoption center, you would never change their name because it's bad luck. And so the whole thing I'm thinking is, like, how much bad luck all these name changes are causing to right. Cheeseman Park. <laughs> well, it's so interesting Funny. when we get into the hauntings, too. One of the biggest words that people use to describe, especially when they see full-body apparitions, which there are a lot of... Mm. The word that comes to mind from kind of reading through various records is confusion. Okay. They're very confused. That makes so much sense. Which also amplifies, at least in my experience as a medium, 99% of the time when somebody comes to visit me in some way, shape, or form, whether it be in an apparition or be just kind of like an internal awareness, it's generally because they're confused and lost and have no idea what's going on. Maybe they passed so quickly that they're unaware that they passed in the first place. Which is hard because sometimes as a medium, it becomes your duty to inform them that they're no longer walking on our plane. They're no longer, um, they're here, of course, but they're no longer existing in a human form. So when you do your walks through Cheeseman Park and you say that you've had moments of chills or darker feelings, have you experienced some of that confusion as well? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I find Cheeseman to be, while stunningly beautiful and somewhere I really enjoy spending time, also very, there's a very heavy sadness there sim- yeah. at the same time. They kind sure. of coexist in this really beautiful way. That doesn't surprise me as we continue to talk about its history, where that would come into play, you know? So by this time, more than 5,000 bodies were still left in the ground and unclaimed. 5,000? 5,000 bodies were still in the ground when construction was set to begin. And and the reality is, is while I say that there are 5,000 bodies still in the ground, more than likely it was a lot more than that. With the level of undocumented burials and mass graves. On March 14th, 1893, E.P. McGovern and 17 of his employees were hired by the city and given the contract to begin removing the remaining bodies at a dollar and 90 cents each. He was expected to provide a quote-unquote fresh box and transport them all to Riverside Cemetery. When he was hired, the citizens of Denver were so grateful that he was taking on this transportation process, this project, that they voted him the Grand Marshal of the St. Patty's Day Parade that year. Oh, pure. <laughs> if, only, if only. If only they knew oh, what God. was about to happen. Oh, no. Overall, he was estimated to make, at that time, $9,500, which is actually about $250,000 now. So he was expected to make what we would consider to be a quarter of a million dollars in this project. To be fair, $9,000 is still a lot of money it's, to me. Yeah, <laughs> it's still a lot of money to me. <laughs> Right after this began, there was a massive, massive mining accident in Utah. So all of the Denver casket makers were shipping all of their adult-sized caskets to Utah. So our boy McGovern was without a source for any of his caskets. Oh, no. 
You ready? No. <laughs> I know, like, uh. He decided to switch to children's caskets. <gasps> These caskets were actually... Oh my God, are you going to tell me he chopped them up and put them in children's caskets? <sighs> <laughs> These caskets were actually, by our standard, would be considered... Con- Considered, the, like, infantile? Infantile. Oh, they God. were one foot by three and a half feet. Oh, no. So he was forced to begin hacking up bodies and oh putting them into two or even three different caskets at a time. Now, this worked out in McGovern's favor because he was being paid by the body. <gasps> He's counting them as more bodies. So they went fucking nuts. <gasps> Even curious reporters hanging out outside the scene because the whole city was watching this. You bet everybody. So they was knew that he was hacking the bodies. Mm-hmm. They were noticed. And they still allowed him to claim Gross. more than one. Mm-hmm. What the? Everybody. <laughs> the newspapers were writing all these articles, shocked and scandalized by the amount of infant bodies that were leaving, or infant caskets that were leaving, the site. But they knew. They knew it was adult bodies in infant caskets. Mm-hmm. See, so and right before you that. said that, I was having this, like, empathetic moment where I was like, God, that's a really traumatic and hard job. Fuck this guy. <laughs> <laughs> Body parts, bones were everywhere. Ugh. Shredded clothing was everywhere. Broken caskets were everywhere. Um, body parts of dozens of different people would be tossed into the same box. Everybody was confused. They said it was literal chaos. A lot of these bodies, like, let's put out here, a lot of these bodies had been in the ground for a decent a amount of time. time. So we're, we're, we're talking about primarily bone remains, is what we're talking about. That does make me feel a little better. However, it was like, let's take five boxes of puzzles and throw all the pieces in the air and just start putting them into whatever box is closest. So I was wondering about that. Did, did like, bodies obviously get mixed up? Everybody. Everybody was mixed up. Okay. Wow. They, there, was, there are documented records of 12-plus different people would be tossed into the same box. McGovern also didn't believe that filling the graves back in was part of his job. So when he finished his work, the entirety of the cemetery was all open graves. The newspapers at this point were sickened and disgusted by the entire operation. It was, it was disgusting. It was something out of a horror movie. Oh, can you imagine the smell? No, I truly cannot. I wasn't even thinking about that until you read it. Yeah. Eventually, the city was forced to cancel the contract with McGovern and shielded the entire park with a massive fence on all four sides. The health inspector was called in to conduct an investigation and decided that they could no longer open the land. It needed to be sealed, and all that they approved from the city was to remove the remaining headstones. I'm glad now the health inspector was Right? Right. (laughs) Now you show up. (laughs) No one was ever awarded the contract from the city again. The city simply gave up. In 1894, the grading and leveling of the park began, but with open graves remaining. Still containing body parts strewn around at this point, might I add. When they finished the contract, they left everybody else in place. Some of the open graves, this is 1894, is when we start leveling this park to make it level and smooth and, you know. The remaining open graves were not filled in until 1902. (laughs) In 1907, Gladys Cheeseman Evans and her mother, Mrs. Walter S. Cheeseman, offered the city $10,000 to name the park after the late pioneer, Walter Cheeseman. And they asked to include a beautiful marble pavilion that we were talking about earlier in his honor. The stones for the pavilion were quarried from the caverns of Treasury Mountain. And initially, this beautiful, it was beautiful, there are photos and paintings of it, contained ornate stairways, gardens. There's a whole lower level. Surprise, surprise, if you live in Denver, there's a whole lower level to the pavilion that does not exist anymore. Yeah, the current pavilion that you see in Cheeseman Park today is actually only half of the actual structure. Wow. Almost immediately after it was finished, the structure and its entire foundation began falling apart, and the city council refused to accept the shoddy work, They refused to pay for it, and so the construction company that was hired immediately ceased construction. If you go visit the pavilion today, the columns of the pavilion were never finished or polished, and to this day, it has never been completed. Interesting. The city decided almost immediately with all of the foundation issues, the best move for them to do was to simply backfill 
They backfilled the whole lower level just to make the structure remain upright. The fountains that you see along the pavilion today, you know how the fountains up front mm-hmm. yeah. were put in much, much, much later. Okay. And those are on top of the fountains that are below them. I'll throw some of the photos of the original construction on my Instagram because I think it's really fun to see. I had no idea until I started doing yeah. this research that that even existed. So we're coming to the end of our history of Cheeseman Park. Kind of the final steps of this story are that by 1950, the Catholic Church decided to remove all of the bodies from their section of the of the cemetery, of the graveyard, and they sold the land to the city to become the Denver Botanic Gardens. So that is when it changed hands from the Catholic Church to become the Denver Botanic Gardens. Of the 20,000 bodies that were buried in the Catholic section of the cemetery, only six were ever recorded. <laughs> six. So there's a bunch of, of people the under the garden still. Thousand bodies that were buried there were ever put on official record. Today, it is estimated that two thousand bodies are still buried in the ground of Cheeseman and the Botanic Gardens, and they continue to resurface regularly. What? Because they only buried them three fucking they them feet three in the ground. Feet deep. So you're gonna tell me that. The place that I go to for peace, <laughs> I could be bopping along, and there's going to be, like, John Doe from freaking 1865 just being like, chilling. peace. Just chilling. <laughs> just just chilling, you know. All right, good to know. Not to have to mention practical magic in everything we do, but all of this is, like, <laughs> right. rising right. up from the garden. And I was reading, I didn't make a lot of notes on this, so I don't want to go into it too in deep, because or too in depth, because I'm not a scientist, but there was a large... Um, a lot of research that was done about the fact that the ground underneath Cheeseman is like a variant of limestone. It's very like soapstone-y. Mm-hmm. It's very light and very mm-hmm. buoyant. So whenever it gets wet or it rains, it's very common for bones that are so airy. Right. There's so much air pockets and bones that they find themselves floating to the surface. Also, they've discovered that the remaining bodies that are in Cheeseman have shifted a very long way. There's one um, building that is now a mansion, or was a mansion that was uh, changed hands and became the office for the Denver Botanic Gardens. It's on one of the corners, oh, actually. Oh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. I love that building. Yes. They went to do soil samples around the mansion, and it was discovered <laughs> that not only had caskets shifted many feet, resulting in them being under the mansion, they also had shifted and turned themselves to vertical. Whoa. When they were drilling core samples for this office building, they discovered that caskets were standing vertically 12 feet below the property. It's I mean, nuts. Right? Why? It's so funny, though, because like, that shouldn't really be creepy, but for some reason... It is. It, is. it just is. It's weird. Um, so the most recent incident of bodies resurfacing was in 2010 during pretty extensive irrigation work at the Denver Botanic Gardens when the park workers uncovered four different bodies during excavation for irrigation, one male and three females. The only items found with them were the handles from the coffins. I just find that fascinating when the body, or the coffins had... Right, all the wood is gone. The handles remained. The nails from the coffin remained. A hair comb was found with them. And all you true crimers out there will love this. A twenty-two caliber bullet was found. Which is considered to be possibly... Like somebody was shot. Exactly. I mean, possibly a means of death from one of these. It's just, I think it's interesting to kind of... I think that's super interesting. ...start to piece together what might have been the stories of these people. Um, Especially when we have zero idea of what their identity was. Right. At least that gives us something. Because when you think about, like, the trauma of spirits and the confusion that you talked about, at least there's something that we can piece together to hold on to their story. Right. To make sense of it all. Yeah. Yeah. There are photos of these bodies, actually. I found quite a few. They're public record. They were covered by the news. Um, So if you want to go poke around, you can find some. In all, the coroner's office has confirmed that the city of Denver removed approximately 54 bodies during the construction of the Botanic Garden parking lot. And so where do they go? In 2010. Or... So then when they when they dug up these like 54 bodies, do we know what happened to them? Yeah, we do. We I mean, do. you make me nervous. <laughs> yeah. 
I wish I could say better things about the way this was handled. And I can't swear for everybody that was removed, but yeah. I know that recently a lot that have been transported have been moved to, I believe it's Mount Olive Cemetery. Okay. And it's an unmarked section of the cemetery. So they remain unmarked to this day. But at least they weren't just like disposed of. Exactly. I have to, I had to take this time to really tell you the story, to really set up. Cheeseman truly is a perfect storm of bad events that lead to a perfect situation for a powerful haunting. Yeah, how could it not be haunted? And I truly feel that Cheeseman deserves a place among the most well-known haunted locations in this country. I think it deserves a place alongside the Stanley Hotel and yes. Penthurst and all of those ones that we talk about all the time. Mm-hmm. We just did such a good job of trying to cover it all up to make a beautiful park for this city. So let's get into the hauntings. I have some stories that I'm going to read. We're going to get some like first person Haunted stories from Cheeseman. I'm ready. Okay, let's do it. This is the stuff I live for. (laughs) So the first documented experience actually happened almost immediately when the bodies were being removed. So like back in the 1800s. Exactly. In 1893, Jim Astor, who was one of the employees from McGovern that was uh, awarded the contract from the city to move the bodies, quote, this is a documented evidence, quote, felt a ghost land upon his shoulders. Oh. What an 1893 thing to say. <laughs> Bye, I, gum. I want to know what that feels <laughs> like, though. I can't say that I ever had that exact experience. I know, and it makes it so different if it's like an adult versus like a kid right. that I lands know, up on your shoulders. For some reason, the sensation I was feeling is not one that would be frightening, so this probably isn't what happened. I know, I'm but I right. like a kid. Or I was like, like a tingly. I was even like like a butterfly or like a bird, like oh, something just nice. like that is nice. Like, it's probably not how not it like a no because from behind. <laughs> <laughs> no because after this happened, he did run from the graveyard and never returned. Oh, cool. So, so yes. not like not that. Not like that. Definitely not a butterfly. <laughs> the most common occurrence that continues to this day. People who live near the graveyard in the surrounding mansions have experienced constantly sad, lost, and confused people wandering from house to house, tapping on their windows, tapping on their doors, making moaning sounds, along with hearing and seeing children playing in the park around twilight. Mm. And when they go to look over the park, there's no one there's there. nothing there. Ooh. Yeah. That gives me chills to just picture tapping on each of the houses and <laughs> but I and I, I I feel it's just confusion yeah. where am I it's heartbreaking my body's been left behind there are a lot of people that are saying too part of the reason well people trying to come up with excuses as to why the city didn't remove all of the bodies one of the primary theories at this point the city didn't have any medical precedent to understand how long a body that passed as a result of smallpox was safe. Oh, Do you know what I mean? Yeah. They had no I they didn't have any way of knowing how long a pock, quote unquote, would survive on a corpse. Interesting. And if it would continue to be I think that's giving the city a huge amount of credit where I don't think it's necessarily due. Yeah, that feels like one of those hindsight what can we tell people? that logically could make sense right. that you won't get a lot of pushback on. But sure. we definitely didn't think of it in the moment. <laughs> and they did quote, there was a village in France, I forget the date because I didn't make notes of this one, I just remember this one from my research, um, that did unearth the body that had passed smallpox and the entire village passed away. Yeah. But this was like, I believe this was also like several centuries earlier. There was no, this was not like a couple years ago situation. This was a while right. back. Um, well, and it's so interesting to think about like this time period because... I mean, this is this is shortly before, like, spiritualism and stuff like that started. Right. But, like, I do feel like people were superstitious at this time. So it's interesting that the bodies were just, like, dealt with in this way when the people had such a culture of, like, taboo. And stuff. Right. And respect. I mean, yeah. a fearful respect, but a respect. Mm-hmm. People even now have claimed that after lying on the grass in Cheeseman Park, sometimes they have had this sensation of it being difficult to get up, almost as though unseen forces were holding them and restraining them against the ground. Uh, you. <laughs> <laughs> so we're not going to sunbathe at Cheeseman. Probably. I mean, the, iro- the irony of this whole thing is, I bet you today, oh, no thousands doubt. of people 
maybe a stretch, but the hundreds <laughs> of people at the very least were chilling out in Cheeseman today. Right. And know none of this. Have yeah, absolutely none of no this. Rec- yeah. Which means that honestly, the city did their job. Yeah. They did exactly what they wanted to do. They wanted a park that was well loved, that people would not be constantly talking about what we dredged up today. But here we are. Here we are. Back. Here we are. <laughs> More reports tell of strange shadows and misty figures that seem to wander through the park in complete confusion. Cheeseman is considered to be the inspiration for the movie Poltergeist, which the crux of the story won't give away everything. Well, spoilers. It's been out for a while. I was going to say spoilers. <laughs> um, the, the, the general premise being a development complex that was built on top of a graveyard. And like the famous quote from the movie is literally that they just chose to move the headstones and left the rest and we saw what happened there. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, it, it's it's said to have taken direct inspiration from the the history and the stories that surround huh. Cheeseman Park. And now I want to tell you my very favorite of all of the haunted stories that I found. I'm going to read this one directly. This is written by Lee Cook, who was a cashier at the King Supers. That's right by. So this is recent. This is within the last. 10 to 15 years, I believe Amazing. this again. I was sitting here like, how old is King Supers? <laughs> yeah, <I> was, <laughs> Back King in 1893. Super's <laughs> no. Market. Okay. This story is called Slackjaw. Ew, I'm already freaking. <laughs> <laughs> I live and work only blocks from the infamous Cheeseman Park in Denver, Colorado, and I've heard stories of its haunted nature, but never thought much of it. Until now. One night, my friend Ruben and I decided to take a walk through the park. We walked across the south lawn to the pavilion where there were several skateboarders making jumps on the sides of the old fountain and other people walking about. So a normal, a normal evening in Cheeseman. We talked about work and other mundane things as we strolled away from the old pavilion to the rose gardens where there's a natural maze of huge rose bushes. Just then I heard a rattling chain behind us and I said, Reuben, can you hear that? As I looked around, he replied that he hadn't heard anything. There, I heard it again, I exclaimed as I heard the chain jingling. Still, he didn't hear it, and we could see no one. Continuing our stroll, we moved toward the middle of the big field, where it was more open, and sat down in the cool grass to smoke a cigarette. Moments later, we were surprised when we saw a kid riding a bicycle with a chain dangling from his pocket. Turning circles around a thin, pale man dressed in what appeared to be a shredded hospital gown covered with blood. The pair moved towards us. To say the least, we were petrified. As they grew closer, I could see that the pale man's jaw was broken. He then approached us. And did you hear that tapping? Mm-hmm. There's like, I swear to God, there is like scratching and tapping happening on the wall right now. Just documenting that for those of you who <laughs> might not be picking that up on I'm the like mic. I'm like all teary-eyed. I know. That was like, that was weird. Mm. I'm like not thrown <laughs> off by weird things, but that was weird. We will continue. (laughs) That tapping like didn't sound like on a specific wall either. That's what's kind of no. It was just there. It was like a like a scratching sound. We were just talking about them going around and tapping on the windows and stuff. We were. Oh, I don't like that. (laughs) (laughs) As they grew, uh, we're just helping remember your story. Right. (laughs) He then approached us and asked for a smoke. As I handed him a cigarette, he said, "Did you see them?" Dumbfounded, I simply replied, "Who?" The ones who did this to me. They stabbed me 15 times, the man said. Oh, that's heartbreaking. He then lifted his sleeves to show us what looked like very deep stab wounds in his arms, back, and chest. Horrified, I said, shouldn't you be in a hospital? Shaking his head, he answered, they let me go because I didn't have any money. He then warned us to watch out for, quote, them, and stated several times, I'm going to get them. When I reassured him that if we saw them, we would let him know, the pair casually moved away from us and into the darkness. When we could see them no longer, Reuben and I quickly ran toward my apartment as fast as we could, never looking back. Afterward, we talked about what we saw for a long time, both confident that we had seen and talked to the walking dead. So if you ever go out to Cheeseman Park at night, know that you just might be questioned by a ghost in a hospital gown who continues to look for his killers. I have dubbed the ghost Slackjaw. I'm rethinking our field trip now. (laughs) (laughs) So sad. It is really sad. I have another one that I actually just found in comments that I thought was kind of fun and I thought I'd read. Having had friends in Denver, I made the trip from Omaha several times. I visited Cheeseman Park on numerous occasions with friends, but none of them told me about the graves that still exist there. 
Not until my last visit in 2011 to see a friend did I learn of the park's dark past. My friend Don told me basically the story told here. Then he led me to a couple areas of the park where slightly sunken plots are noticeable. He said those are the empty, looted graves the robbers pillaged. It was obvious, looking at the land, that these hadn't been actual graves in decades. Then he took me to an area where the paupers, criminals, and the destitute were buried, and said the area was basically untouched. The bodies were never moved to other cemeteries. He said he was spoken to there by what he said was, quote, a middle-aged guy wearing ripped-up pants, no shirt, and a cowboy hat. The guy said to him, hey, have you seen my wife? And then disappeared into a bush, as though he had walked right through it. And you know what? I believe him. That's like another heartbreaking story of like the confusion. It's and confusion like, and people? loss. Yeah. Oh, that's, that, that breaks my heart. And the last thing I want to talk about is the movie The Changeling. Mm. Have you ever seen the movie The Changeling? I have not seen it, but I am very familiar with like the legend and the, the folklore yeah. around The Changeling from Ireland. We might have to plan a, a movie night sometime yes. so we can watch it. So the movie is claimed to be from the experiences of famous writer slash playwright Russell Hunter, who is known mm. for his work on Broadway in, um, well, the year that this occurred was in 1968. He had rented a mansion, the Treat Rogers Mansion, at 1739 East 13th Ave after the tragic death of his wife and daughter. The mansion rented for $200, and even at the time, that was a pretty reasonable price for this mansion. Hunter claimed that about a week after moving in, he started hearing loud thumps and strange noises coming from the bedroom fireplace. He was eventually so frustrated with the sounds that he screamed, stop it, and the noises stopped. The activity then changed to doors opening and closing, paintings flying off the walls, and Mr. Hunter even claimed that the walls as a whole vibrated. Mr. Hunter eventually decided to have a seance with some local psychics to see what was happening. I love how he goes from frustrated to, okay, let's have Let's find out. <laughs> That's like the most 1968 thing I've ever heard in my whole life. Oh, for sure. When Stop It didn't work, let's do some research. Right. This escalated quickly. <laughs> he then claims that the psychics told him that there was the ghost of a child who was the son of the original owners of the home, and his spirit was trying to pass on his story. The claim was that when the child was born, he was set to inherit $700 million on his 21st birthday. Caveat, there is a lot of tall tale involved in this story. I have okay. to be 100% honest. This is the story that's been told. And retold. And retold and turned into movies. Take it or leave it. Got it. It's a story. I don't know that there's true documented evidence of all of this, but it's a great story. Okay. It's a great story. The child was set to inherit $700 million on his 21st birthday. The child had been born sickly and was not expected to live to the age of inheritance. And the parents who wanted him to claim the money realized that if the child did not live long enough, they would not get any of that money. They decided to adopt a child that was similar to the sickly child and raise him as a replacement changeling so he could inherit the money. The sickly child was then locked in a small attic room and left to die. Mr. Hunter was told that he would be able to confirm this story by finding this hidden room in the house. He claims that there was a hidden door leading to an attic room, and when he opened the door, a red rubber ball came bouncing down the <gasps> stairs. He also discovered several toys, a bed, a bathtub that were all child-sized. He also claimed to find a diary that contained stories of his life and how his parents had been ashamed of him from the time of his birth. It also mentioned that his favorite toy was... A red... You guessed it! Rubber ball. A red rubber ball. The psychics then informed Mr. Hunter that the sickly boy had died and the family had had him secretly buried in a South Denver location that is now under the closet of a house. The psychics gave Mr. Hunter the address of the home in South Denver and said that once he unearthed the body, he would find a gold medallion that would be inscribed with the child's birth date. They told him that once he had the medallion, he could go to the public and expose the truth to set the boy's spirit free. Mm. Mr. Hunter claims that he was eventually allowed to dig for the boy, and indeed, he did find the medallion. Once he had the medallion, Mr. Hunter says the walls of the mansion, quote, shook, and that the thumps were increasingly louder. He even claimed that a glass door exploded and severed an artery in his arm, requiring medical attention. 
Mr. Hunter moved from the location to a home on Kearney Street and claimed that the haunting followed him. He was so desperate that he contacted a priest with the Epiphany Episcopal Church who says they came out and exorcised the home. The home was then demolished in 1974. If a story ever existed that would expect to excite paranormal activity, this is surely at the top of the list. Hmm. Now, very little of this story has been fully documented and supported by historical references. It's a great story, though. And it's a great (laughs) story that takes place here in Cheeseman Park. It just gives a little taste of what people have been experiencing all around it. It, It's just another story that adds to the lost forgottenness of... Like, that's that's the whole theme, right? Is that it's it's about people who've been lost and forgotten and... Yeah. Sad. (laughs) I know. It's more sad to say it out loud than I expected, to be be fully honest with you. It, It carries more weight when you tell the story now, more so than I expected. Yeah. And I think it's important also for people to remember not to be put off or turned away from locations that might be considered, quote, haunted or, quote, active or scary. And to remember that some of the time, in fact, I would argue to say most of the times in these locations that are so well known for their paranormal activity, it has more to do with the unfinished business and the yeah. unclosed doors and the goodbyes that were never said, and the... There's always a sense of tragedy about, like, the most haunted places. It's never, like, a a fun Casper story, right? Right, (laughs) right. No, absolutely. And it's easy to take them and to run with them in the poltergeist and the changeling direction to make sense of them when sometimes it's a lot more simple. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the tale of Cheeseman Park. That is the history of the park that we walk over so often. And many, I feel there's many in the city who are aware of the tall tale of the bodies buried in Cheeseman Park, but don't realize quite how tragic and how mishandled it truly was. Like, there was a period of time where that park was just open graves everywhere. Or the extent of, like, when you talk about, oh yeah, there was a cemetery under here. Right. Like, no one realized it was 20,000 bodies at one point. (laughs) Yeah, and I think people... Well, that was just one section, right? Right. 20,000 in one section. In one section, section. yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, and I think something that's just really interesting to think about and grapple with just on a, I don't know, maybe a personal morality level is when, how long of time, what period of time has to pass for these to become stories, for it to be just like fodder and fun campfire stories and not actual human beings who lived and died just like all of us are going to live and die. And like at what point... It's like in archaeology, right, too? I'm a, um, a big, like, anthropology nerd. And it's that concept of how long is somebody gone when their body becomes scientific yeah, and not humanitarian. I think there's a lot of talk about that with the recent, like, pharaohs mm-hmm. parade yes. in Egypt about, like, you're still transporting right. bodies. Right. right. You're still breaking live. into sacred spaces right. and people's final resting places. And in the name of science, sure. And I'm endlessly fascinated by all of that. And, you know, we've made some incredible archaeological strides in the last decade, even. Right. It's an important scientific endeavor in one in some capacity. Yeah. And what there's a particular... Um, I'm blanking on the name of it right now, but there's a Netflix documentary that came out this last year about one of those sites that was recently unearthed. And all of the archaeologists and all of the excavators who were on the project were Egyptian. And that was by design because Mm. everyone else who was coming in was not treating it with the same amount of reverence. They didn't understand. So they removed all, like, no European archaeologists, no American archaeologists. It was you had to be Egyptian if you were going to work on this site. I'm really glad to hear that. And hopefully that's a shift that happens much more frequently where the people of that culture are the ones that are doing it. Are the ones, yeah, like helping transport both the story. And I guess in a lot of ways you're keeping people alive that way too. So there is a lot of beauty in in remembering these people and knowing these stories. But yeah, how you tell them matters. And I think we obviously... Had a lot of work to do with (laughs) Cheeseman. I think it's also a really interesting cultural difference. 
Mm -hmm. I one of the things that really stood out to me about the movie Coco is the cultural appreciation of memory and respect and putting it so visually that like even in the afterlife and whether this is true or not true is kind of irrelevant to the point of like when you are forgotten even after you've passed is like a second death mm-hmm. and I, I it's something that I have so much respect and appreciate it's 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 in my top 10 favorite movies animated or not because I think it tells a story from a different perspective that some of us that come from a post-colonialist world Mm -hmm. it was never something that was important to us or we were never taught to appreciate that quite the same way and I think it's something we can learn from other cultures how to keep memory alive and respect alive it's it's exactly what you're talking about with the pharaohs is like hundreds of thousands of years later I don't it could be even more than that I am not a (laughs) I am not a but like so so much time has passed and yet we're we're treating this funeral procession as though they passed in this moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now or then, they were still pharaohs of their people. Right. And of course, that's a very specific example because it was such a revered position and mm-hmm. a lot of the people that were in Cheeseman were all were the criminals and right. the poor and those who had passed from... Disease. Disease, yeah, exactly. And who, who were forgotten in their life. Right. right. Even before they died, they were on the fringes of society. And it is truly why I've decided to dedicate season one to Colorado Tales is I want us to remember the people of Colorado who have passed, who didn't have necessarily the respect that they might have had today. Yeah. I want to hold a little space of gratitude, first of all, for having us on your first season, (laughs) but also that you are allowing a space for the telling of these stories. I think it's so important and... I'm excited to see where this goes for you. And what, I am what comes too. Out of it. I want to take a second to kind of offer this podcast up to the universe for my part to just kind of allow it to be led wherever it's meant to go and to celebrate the fact that I got the tap on the shoulder to do it at this moment in time and it led us together and you need to go jump over to their podcast because we have some fun stories to tell as well. Um, so I'm very grateful for you guys being here and supporting me in all of this Mm -hmm. and i'm grateful for this space that's been given to me to celebrate these stories yes one of the best plus sides about dedicating a whole season of this podcast to the incredible state of Colorado is that I have the gift and the opportunity to go visit these places. So forgive all the background noise and ambient sounds and everything. I am here standing on the corner of 13th and Gilpin in Denver, Colorado, looking at what is now the address 1739 East 13th Ave. And I'm having a very surreal moment here as I stare at what is now what is now the Ray Cushman Family Center located on the corner overlooking Cheeseman Park. This is the location of what was formerly the Changeling House that has since been demolished and it is very surreal to stand here and look at the structure that's in its place and imagine The stories and the tales that come from that exact plot of land, whether true or untrue, they had the power of tall tale to last the span of time and to make their way into pop culture in such a profound way that we are left with a movie that will forever remind us of the story. It's even more surreal as it is a beautiful Sunday morning around 10.30 in the morning as I stroll my way into Cheeseman Park and overlook all the people everywhere walking and laying outdoors enjoying this beautiful day as i turn to my right and look behind me i see an ominous black line of clouds as the epic thunderstorms forecasted for this afternoon roll in and i find myself in an odd sense of stillness despite the action and bustle around me as nobody remembers what's beneath their feet. Or if they do, 
perhaps it has never landed in a way that feels real. I don't know that I can ever go back. When you learn so much about a place, I don't know that you can ever look at it the same way again. And that's a gift and a curse of this sort of thing, isn't it? You can never really go back. Special thanks goes out to my brother, Andrew Haig, for providing and producing our theme music and transitional music. I truly hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you would take a moment, be sure to go visit us at www.whenwallscantalktarot.com or on Instagram at whenwallscantalk with underscores for spaces. You can also reach me to schedule your tarot session by emailing me at jeremy at whenwallscantalktarot.com. Other than that, I truly hope you enjoyed today's episode, and I cannot wait to come back next week with another Colorado tale.